HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. It's such a great restaurant. Best place in the world. Just the happiest place in the world. Seems to be like a one-man operation. At least every time I've called, the same guy answers the phone. I was telling them about it, and I was like, oh, but if I take you there, then you're going to share it with everybody. (laughs) I don't want everybody to know about it. That exclusivity, like you were in on something that others were missing out on, was a cool feeling. For years, me and my parents would just mislead people, sending them to a different Chinese food restaurant. And that was wonderful. I don't want it to lose this feeling of like, oh, I know this guy, like, he's my coffee guy. I think it's important to fight that feeling because, like, the restaurateurs deserve for people to know. So, of course, I feel like I should tell my friends because, like, everyone should know, even though I don't want to tell my friends. Well, yeah, it's very hard to, to give away your secrets when you have somewhere that's very dear to you. It's like your own spot in the world. You just heard the voices of New Yorkers talking about their favorite secret spots in the city. You know the kind, those small spots that you love, but you don't want to tell anybody about. We've all got one. Today's episode is all about the secret and unseen aspects of food. From speakeasies around New York City, to what goes on underground in our soil, to the little-known sweetening additives in cigarettes. There's always more to food than meets the eye. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. For our first story, Caroline Fox takes us to one of New York's most exclusive underground bars to uncover why prohibition levels of secrecy will always attract a crowd. Tucked away inside a busy subway station, through a vending machine window, and even behind a piping hot Five Guys kitchen, New York City is filled with hidden bars for you to discover. But even though the term speakeasy gets thrown around a lot, and some spots even incorporate prohibition motifs, these bars are completely legal. 
This week, I decided I wanted to learn more about what unconventional drinking experiences exist beyond what the eye can see. Luckily, Jesse Scheidlauer, a bar manager in East Williamsburg, had just the spot for me. I'm Jesse Scheidlauer. I'm the bar manager of the Threesome Toll Booth, which is a the smallest bar in the world. It is a, a two-person bar uh, that is a, a bar big enough for, for uh, only the bartender and two customers. Um, it is a collaborative project between uh, me and my colleague, Andy Austin. We're the only people involved and we're, you know, we're the bar. For context, Jesse is a lexicographer, someone who writes dictionaries, so he takes his definitions very seriously. About 10 years ago, He was bartending underground events with N.D. Austin that he classifies as actual speakeasies. His first gig was based in an abandoned water tower. So that that was called the Night Heron, which was a speakeasy built into the water tower of an abandoned building or a a disused building in Chelsea, where basically we, we broke in, built a speakeasy in the water tower, which was extremely small, and ran it for about a month or so having elaborate events uh, inside there until we shut it down. It was um, a very, it was a dicey proposition because this you know, was not someplace we were supposed to be. Um, and that was an extremely fun, it's, it's really the favorite thing I've ever done or experienced in, in New York, to be perfectly honest. Even though the duo said goodbye to their mischievous days, Jesse and N.D. made sure to maintain a sense of allure and secrecy with their new spot. With no photos and an address texted to you the morning of, The drinking experience is so unconventional, it really can only be understood through the customer's first reaction. When people walk in, they start to giggle. Almost everyone starts to giggle. Even if they know it's really, really, really small and it's beautifully decorated, whatever, they still start to giggle every time. And you can't take a photo that that gives you the feeling of what it's like to be inside. We don't say, please don't talk about this, but people tend not to um, because they agree that it's better as a surprise or that it's something you have to be there to experience. What better person to offer a sneak peek and tell me about the experience than Souther Teague, host of The Speakeasy on HRN? Yeah, the bartender and you and a guest, and that's it. A tiny space, like literally inside of a closet, but you're whisked in there and it's so adorned and decorated. It feels like you've, you know, just gotten uh, into... Uh, you know, some kind of weird fanciful time machine. Uh, And there's little bottles everywhere because there's no room in there to have all the big bottles. So they've just decked it out with tiny bottles that are intricate and etched and beautiful. And they're making you drinks and you're you're face to face with the bartender. Um, So you're already in this somewhat like exciting and maybe even in a weird way, uncomfortable environment. Uh, And then they're going to make a drink for you with bottles that don't have labels and tools that are antiquated and uh, techniques that you've maybe never seen before. Um, and that, I think that just adds to the wonder and curiosity of it. Discomfort and adventure are unusual feelings that you really don't get on an average night out drinking. You know, we enjoy being tricked. You know, we love to watch magic. Like, I love that. We're, when we're drinking, I think we're looking for escapism and ways to relax and let go of our, you know, normal reality. It's a mini vacation. If you can get yourself into a, an interesting cocktail bar on a Friday night or even a Wednesday night, whatever night, that might take you away from the, the burdens and, and workload that, that are your life in a small way, just like it would when you take off for an island for a week, right? It's a mini vacation. While some of New York's culture is on display for everyone to see, unconventional, off-the-grid experiences like Threesome Tollbooth are just as essential to New York's character. For our next story, H. Conley discusses the addictive attributes of a single additive. What's more addictive, sugar or cocaine? 
multiple studies have shown that rats not only will choose sugar water over Coke, but will develop a dependency on sugar. They'll exhibit typical symptoms of addiction, including cravings and withdrawal. People discuss the addictive power of donuts and soda, but sugar can lead to other types of addiction as well. I'm going to tell you a story about sugar, monopoly busting, World War I, chemistry, and cigarettes. The story has impacted the lives and deaths of nicotine consumers for more than 100 years. It all started with one president who thought corporations were gaining too much power. The trust buster Teddy Roosevelt became president in 1901. He wanted to break up the monopolies with strangleholds on American industry. He weaponized the previously unenforced Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 to wrest power from the companies that dominated railroads, oil, sugar, and tobacco. United States versus American Tobacco Company was heard by the Supreme Court in 1911. They broke one company into four, American Tobacco Company, R.J. Reynolds, Liggett and Myers, and Lorillard. But before I get into the years after the court case, let's talk about tobacco. At this point in time, tobacco was chewed or smoked in pipes and cigars. There were two ways the majority of tobacco was prepared. It was either Kentucky Burley tobacco or flu-cured Virginia. Burley is made by air curing a Turkish tobacco varietal. It's high in nicotine, low in sugar, which means the smoke has a high pH. Alkaline smoke can't be inhaled because it irritates the mucous membrane in the lungs and stimulates the coughing response. The cured leaves are porous, so farmers marinate them in a sugar sauce. Tobacco can absorb up to half its own weight in sugar through saucing. This made it perfect for chewing because sugar was cheaper to produce and made it palatable. Flu-cured Virginia tobacco is made by suspending harvested leaves over an iron flue, drying them over the course of almost a week. This breaks down the enzymes that would otherwise break down the natural sugars they contain. Flu-curing produces tobacco that's as much as 22% sucrose, but low in nicotine. The high sugar content results in tobacco smoke that's acidic. It can be inhaled deeply into the lungs, unlike the alkaline smoke of Burley. It was used in early cigarettes, which were easily inhaled, but had a low nicotine content, so weren't addictive. When the four tobacco manufacturers split after the Supreme Court case, R.J. Reynolds ended up with a great deal of sugar-sauced Burley tobacco intended for chewing even though they had become a cigarette company. In order to use up their inventory, they came up with a solution that revolutionized the industry, blended tobacco. They mixed the high nicotine Kentucky saturated with delicious sugar sauce with the low nicotine naturally sweet Virginia. This created the first high nicotine inhalable tobacco, Camel Cigarettes. Within two years, Camels were the best-selling cigarettes on the market, although cigarettes themselves were banned by some state legislatures. But with the onset of World War I, perceptions and laws changed. Cigarettes were the most convenient way to smoke in the trenches and were easily distributed. General Pershing was quoted as saying that, for the troops, cigarettes were more important than bullets. Back home, they became associated with youth and patriotism. 
By the 1920s, cigarettes overtook cigars. They were accepted as ladylike, mainly because the sugar from the saucing crystallized while being smoked. This made them taste and smell better than alternatives. If you prefer the aroma of cigarettes over the pungent odor of cigars, that's mainly the sugar. They were fashionable, the perfect accessory to complete the flapper look. Over the next decades, they were marketed as slimming with numerous touted health benefits. But the ease of inhalation and satisfying nicotine hit of blended tobacco had major ramifications. At most 5% of the nicotine in tobacco smoke is absorbed in the mouth. When drawn deep into the lungs, nicotine can be absorbed over a vast mucous membrane. The internal surface area of your lungs is roughly 40 times that of your skin. Prior to 1900, only 150 cases of lung cancer were diagnosed in the U.S. In 1914, one year after camels were introduced, 400 cases were diagnosed. By 1930, nearly 3,000. In 1945, more than 12,000 Americans died from lung cancer. In 2005, deaths peaked at more than 163,000. The number has declined over the last 15 years, but lung cancer still accounts for about a quarter of cancer deaths each year. There are numerous factors that have contributed to these devastating statistics. However, the role of sugar can't be overlooked. Cigarettes would have been less appealing for folks to pick up without the burly saturated with sugar. They would have been less addictive if they maintained the low nicotine content of Virginia. The blend made something that had been enjoyed casually into something that hooks people for life. Cigarettes have been dominant for a century. The evidence has accumulated with generation after generation getting addicted to the sweet blended smoke. A new millennium means a modern way of consuming tobacco gaining popularity. Vapes deliver a higher concentration of nicotine that's easier to inhale. They taste and smell enticingly sweet with fun flavors that appeal to teens and claims of health benefits over alternatives. Just like sugar helps the medicine go down and has you reaching for the next Oreo in the sleeve, sugar also helps the nicotine absorb. It has you lighting the next cigarette or bringing the vape back up for one more puff. Research for this story is primarily from The Case Against Sugar by Gary Taubes. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. You may have noticed that we have a whole new look. We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. 
Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic, and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of five or $10 a month? It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Next up, Zoe Dinkla explores the origins of the Food and Drug Administration at the turn of the 20th century and one chemist's crusade to uncover all the unseen chemicals that found their way into the U.S. food supply. We've been hearing a lot about the FDA this past year with COVID. Emergency authorizations, travel recommendations, etc., etc. As essential as it feels now, the FDA is a fairly new part of our government. So what led to its creation in the first place? Here to help us understand the dangers of the American food supply in the late 19th century, which led to the birth of the FDA, is Deborah Blum, a science writer and chair of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT, who wrote a book in 2018 on the Poison Squad. And just a heads up, Deborah's interview was pulled from an episode of The Taste of the Past, so that third voice you hear responding to Deborah from time to time is the show's host, Linda Palaccio. Now back to 19th century food. You could have formaldehyde every single meal of the day without knowing it. You know, people would pretend to make cheddar cheese and then make it more orange by adding red lead. Ground coffee often had, you know, burnt rope. Sometimes they actually just crumbled up charred bone into the ground coffee cans. If you were an American shopping for groceries in the early 1900s, you would unknowingly consume these dangerous chemicals on a daily basis. No labels, no regulations, nothing. Enter Harvey Washington Wiley. Starting in 1892, he was the chief chemist at the Department of Agriculture. Wiley tested all this food and was stunned by how much of it was fake and full of chemicals. He wanted people to know what they were actually buying. He published his findings and nobody seemed to pay attention. Food safety wasn't a real priority for the government at the turn of the 20th century, and I doubt many normal people read these dense reports. So in 1902, Wiley went big. Finally, he saw, well, why don't we just actually take a look at what these do to people, right? You could never do this today. So he called it the hygienic table trial. He built a kitchen and a dining room in the basement of the agriculture department, hired a high-end professional chef who had worked at some very good hotels. It was free food. Uh, The only catch was that Wiley would add the substance that he was interested in at the moment to the food. Then you would have to be weighed and measured and, and have all kinds of medical tests. The trial spanned from 1902 to 1906. 
Wiley tested a bunch of chemicals commonly consumed by Americans in the early 1900s. He started off with borax, a chemical that was used to firm up rotting food. It can actually still be found in our kitchens today, just as a countertop cleaner. But getting back to the story, right off the bat, the men got much sicker than Wiley ever expected. They had to end that study uh, before they finished the round of the highest dose. People were throwing up, they were losing weight, they were dizzy. The formaldehyde study, and this won't surprise you, they didn't even get through the first round before they had to call it. It was so poisonous. Suddenly, Wiley's experiment was being covered by every major newspaper. Journalists even tried to sneak into the agriculture department to catch a glimpse of this wacky science experiment. And I mean, who wouldn't be intrigued by young men voluntarily poisoning themselves? The Poison Squad, as they came to be known as, kept the whole country on the edge of their seats. Which chemical was the worst? Would they all make it? All the hype seemed to pay off. Shortly after the trials ended in 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed. From then on out, companies were legally obligated to disclose what was in their products. That bill became the founding document for our modern FDA. Of course, American food regulation today is not perfect, but we can see what happens without it. So, shout out to Harvey Washington Wiley and his Poison Squad for giving consumers the power to see what actually went into their food. To hear Deborah Bloom's full interview, you can listen to episode 138 of A Taste of the Past. It's not just our food that contains more than meets the eye, it's also where we grow that food. And sometimes you have to be careful, especially if you have kids helping you out in the garden and interacting with soil. Brianna Brady spoke with a couple of scientists from New York City's Urban Soils Institute to find out what's going on beneath the surface in our gardens. Once a month, Igor Bronz and George Lazowski run a free soil testing day on Governor's Island. It makes for kind of a funny picture. People riding the ferry, carrying sandwich baggies full of soil from their gardens and yards. Two men standing on the porch of the Yellow Swale House with what looks like a laser gun, x-raying each baggie. But soil is pretty serious business. Soils are essentially dynamic, living ecosystems. Um, so we all think of soils, we think of things growing in them like plants and trees and shrubs and all kinds of vegetation. But soil actually contains other organisms. Organisms like bacteria and fungi that help decompose dead organic matter and keep nutrients in the soil for new plants. Normally, when soil is healthy, Igor and George support getting your hands dirty, especially when you're young. It's really the microbiota in the soil that play a huge role in determining the health of your immune system, basically for the rest of your life. Basically from birth to about eight months, you want to let your kids play in the soil. However, this can get complicated, specifically with urban soils. That is to say, any soil near human development, like roads or buildings. Soil is a sponge that reflects the history of wherever that soil is from. Uh, in New York, the urban soil contains the history, uh, the industrial history during the, the 1930s and 40s and 50s. It contains the history of various um, housing developments that were constructed and deconstructed and turned to parks and then turned to something else. All that history 
might harm kids as much as benefit them. Past industrial development might have left behind heavy metals like lead and mercury. Heavy metals are special in that you can't get rid of a heavy metal. In other words, if there's lead in the soil, it'll be there essentially forever. And, well... When a child whose body is developing gets lead in their system, which is always a, a toxin, there's, there's no biological use for lead, the lead tends to replace calcium in the bones and in the nervous system. George and Igor say that plants themselves tend to filter out heavy metals. So you don't have to worry so much about ingesting them if you've washed your vegetables carefully. But it can still be scary when you're used to letting your kids help you garden. That's why they're helping people test their soil. And once you know if your soil is contaminated, there are solutions. How about we cover that soil with healthy soil um, and grow some vegetation on it? And we are immediately going to make a barrier between, between ourselves and that contaminated soil below the healthy soil that we just built. So that's where things like raised beds come in, right? People will build healthy soils above ground to grow their vegetables. So maybe take a trip to Governor's Island, get your soil tested, lay down some compost, garden, dig your hands into the earth. And then, you know, let your kid eat some dirt. It's good for them. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Hannah Fulmer, Caroline Fox, H. Conley, Zoe Dinkla, and Brianna Brady. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. And a quick note, this is my very last time hosting Meet and Three. It has been an honor to be a part of this podcast and help create a platform for dozens of talented food storytellers. I'll be turning the hosting reins over to my fellow producers, Dylan Hoyer and Hannah Forden, so keep your ear out for them, along with Katie Mosman-Wadler, in future episodes. Meet and 3's audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please keep in touch. Whether you have a story, idea, or just want to say hello, you can write to us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.